0: May the words I speak, and the words we hear, be your words of life to us, our God. Amen. You can imagine the scene. Peter and his partners sitting in their boats after a hard and fruitless night's fishing. And as they clean their nets, they are wondering how might they feed their families this day. And how might they pay all those other demands on their catches? This is a hard life, and this last night has made it harder. And so they are dejectedly clearing, cleaning their nets, and and ordering their boats ready for the next night, the next night of fishing, and hopefully a catch. And then they can go home to sleep. But along the beach comes Jesus. He's been in town for a while now, and they've been listening to him. He healed Peter's wife's mother, and he's stirring things up in town and in them. And here he comes with a growing crowd trailing around, trailing along. That crowd is eager for more, so eager that they are crowding Jesus, and he can't move, let alone teach. So he gets into Peter's boat and ask them to push out of it. It's been a long night. They still aren't entirely sorted. They have nothing to show for all their labor. Peter is tired, and he wants to go home, have something to eat, and get some sleep. But here is this man who healed his mother-in-law and others. And who teaches with such authority. He is amazing. And he's sitting in his boat. Wow. So, well, he pushes out. And he sits. And he listens as Jesus teaches. And he waits. Soon he can go home. And then Jesus turns to him and asks him to go out further. To again throw out the nets that that have been so carefully cleaned. What? Seriously? He is so tired. And what does this teacher know about fishing? He's from Nazareth. Do you know how many lakes are near Nazareth? None. He knows nothing. Master, we have worked hard all night and caught nothing, he despairs. But he has seen Jesus do some pretty crazy things. And he is beginning to trust him. But because you say so, I'll drop the nets. And he does. And soon, He and the others in his boat are struggling with the catch. They have never seen a catch like this. It is huge. The wealth in this catch is staggering. There are too many fish. And they call their friends on the beach and soon both their boats are near sinking with the weight of the fish. They are in awe. They are filled with wonder and dread. This man is holy. And they are not. They are rough, unholy fishermen. And they have no place in this presence, being in the presence of this man who heals, who has power over the spirits of the sea, and who teaches the words of life. This is too much, and they wish him gone. But Jesus has other ideas. Don't be afraid. From now on, you will be fishing for people. What does that even mean? But here is the surprising thing. They leave everything and follow. They do not deal with that amazing catch of fish with all the wealth tied up in it. And they do not go home and talk to their families about all this will mean for them. They just Go, And they leave behind everything that defined who they were. Their family and their place in the family, the village they were from, and their identity as fishermen. They start again, and they reimagine themselves as disciples to this Rabbi Jesus with all the growing uncertainty and danger that held. No longer from one place, Capernaum, But roaming the countryside with all the growing uncertainty and danger that that held. And they are now fishers of people and learning what that meant. So I wonder why does Luke tell his story like this? Where's Andrew? It's different from the others, the way the other gospel writers tell that story. And I wonder what happened to all that fish? And I wonder what did Peter's wife think about all of this? Isaiah too had to reimagine who he was. According to the ancient rabbis, Isaiah's father, Amos, was the brother to King Amaziah, which meant he was the nephew to the king. He is a member of the royal family, and he enjoys all the privilege and the wealth and the comfort being a member of that family entailed. And his life is is defined by the intrigues and the dangers of being part of that family, his king grandfather and his uncle were both assassinated. So, being a member of the royal family wasn't always a good thing. And we've just heard his story of the story of his call to be a prophet. It is a dramatic story. As dramatic as the call of Peter and James and John. He is called to be a prophet to the southern kingdom, the kingdom of Judah, his kingdom. Which was problematic, because they really saw themselves as the holy and righteous kingdom. They, well their king, stood in line with David, like Isaiah himself. And they worshipped at the true temple in Jerusalem, as Isaiah did, and maybe where this vision took place. What need is there for a prophet in this kingdom, unlike those backsliding and more powerful cousins to the north, who had abandoned the Davidic kings and had their own line of kings, although they kept being assassinated and new lines of kings being established, and who had established their own temple with their own priests, and who had on more than one occasion humiliated Judah. For their many and great sins, they were now under serious threat from Assyria. They were in great need of a prophet. But Judah? Surely not. But Isaiah was not called to be a prophet to Israel. He was called to be a prophet to his own people, to his own family. And so he had to reimagine himself as the one who calls out his family's desire for wealth and security at expense of the poor, the immigrants, the orphans and widows, and their northern neighbours. And even as he says, yes, you can hear the despair in his question, how long, Lord? And you can hear his grief as he hears the response. He, like those fishermen, will have to leave everything behind that defined who he was, that gave him identity. He will no longer be welcome in his home. How he saw them and how they saw him was about to radically change. In the end the rabbinic tradition says that he is sawn in two by them through his mouth. But he will continue to love Jerusalem and speak in its defence to his family and to God. And here are we. We have spent the last nearly two years negotiating our way through a pandemic, which has changed so much of how we live life. Mask wearing, social distancing, contact tracing, vaccine passes, things mostly we'd never heard of two years ago. They're now part of our daily life. And it has changed how we see other people, and how we relate to other people. And it is changing how we see ourselves as the people of God. Our old understandings of what it means to be church were already under pressure. The cracks were already showing, COVID has just made it much more obvious. We are like Peter, James and John. We are like Isaiah. We are having to reimagine who we are. What does it mean for us to follow Jesus in this changing world? Who are we called to be? Call. Well, there are three things that we normally associate about call. Three things that we need to think about for a moment. The first is that we often think that only special people get called. People like Joyce and I. We're special and we get called and Debbie. But actually, all of us are called. Every single one of us in this room is called. That's what baptism is about. That's where call starts at our baptism. Each one of us has an opportunity to be like Isaiah and say, I'm here, send me, whether we like it or not, whether we think about it or not. So call is something all of us has to think about. And secondly, we often think about call as being a call to do something. But in fact, none of the call stories we just listened to were about doing anything. It was about identity, how they saw themselves in the world. Even Paul in his letter to Corinthians says the same thing. They were all called to be, to be a prophet, to be fishers of people, to be an apostle. My call to be a Franciscan wasn't to do anything, but it was to see myself as a follower of Christ in the footsteps of Francis and Claire. It's about identity, and everything else comes out of that. And thirdly, we often think about call being about an individual call, and that's certainly true. We've heard the story of individuals being called, but that wasn't the end of their call. So Isaiah was called to be a prophet so that he could once again speak the call of God to the people of God in Judah to be the people of God. He was the vehicle by which God called the whole community. He was asking that whole kingdom to reimagine itself and what it meant to be the people of God. And Jesus takes that. It's Isaiah that Jesus uses. You just heard him in the previous chapter quote from the scroll of Isaiah. And it's the basis of what he is trying to do. He sees himself as the one through whom Isaiah's prophecies about the people of God will come true. He is enacting them. And so when he calls Peter and James and John it's not just an individual call but it's to be part of our community that will call the people of God to be the people of God and then will include many others to how they traditionally understood the people of God but it's all to live out what Isaiah was talking about. So our call is for ourselves, but also this community and what we offer the wider community following the footsteps of Jesus. So as we live through these times, how is God inviting us to reimagine who we are? Today is, as I said earlier, Waitangi Day. And normally at this time, I would be kind of just got home from being down at the dawn service of Hoku Kiori at Mount Jury, which this year was all online. And I couldn't take part anyway because I was here at church. This treaty, which is an intrinsically Anglican document, as I've said before, it was petitioned for, among others, by Anglican missionaries who were inspired and shaped by the words of the scriptures that we have been listening to, and who were seeking to find a way that Māori and Europeans could live side by side as Māori and as Europeans for the the common good of all. They weren't trying to change Māori into Europeans. And they followed Jesus in seeking to create a just community, just as Isaiah had longed for. And it was argued for by Anglican humanitarians, among others, who sought to protect Māori from the worst effects of British settlers. It was drawn up and translated by Anglicans. It was signed by those who trusted, among others, Anglican missionaries. And they signed on the basis of how they understood the Māori text in light of what those missionaries had taught on other occasions about the Bible, including the passages that we heard today. And it was taken around the country by, among others, Anglican missionaries, for more Māori to sign. So yes, the 6th of February is important, that's when it was first signed, but there'll be little commemorations around the country, little remembrances, as other parts of the country remember, when that part of the country signed. So Hirani Kaa, who was here a year ago, speaking about the treaty, he said, today is a practice run for the real event that happened in Ngāti Peru in June, when the real people signed it down there. And, well, actually, it was May. In June is when it was signed here, so Graham Cameron, who used to be here, says the real date is in June when Pirigarko, who were on the other side of the Wairoa, I'm uh, um, listening to the French Catholic missionaries decided not to sign it. But most of the other Māori here did sign it. So there are lots of dates for the signing of the Treaty of Waitangi. Our fingerprints are all over Te which is why it's at the centre of our Church's constitution. Sadly, Anglicans have been at the forefront over the last 170 years of denying the treaty, denying its importance and trying to consign it to the rubbish tin of history. But we have also been at the forefront of trying to live it out. So today we are reminded that we are called to be more. To not just think about how it has been, but to imagine how it might be. We are called to join Isaiah and Peter and James and John to be a reflection of God's love and generosity and mercy. Te tiriti or Waitangi is ours, and we we are called to stand with Isaiah and to invite our nation to be more than we have been. And we are also called to stand with Isaiah. And to invite our nation to be more than we have been as we learn the lessons of the last two years. As we can see the inequalities and how that has affected people across Aotearoa. We are invited to reimagine how we might, as a nation, see ourselves so that all might thrive. So I invite you to spend a moment reflecting on that. And thinking about what that might look like and what our role in that might be.